0: Welcome to Inside Scope, the American Gastroenterological Association podcast that will help you advance your patient care one half hour segment at a time. Join us to hear from the experts, learn new skills, and stay abreast of changing best practices. We'll be tackling a different topic each month, so make sure to subscribe and join us on our mission to improve digestive health for all. Hello everyone, I'm Dr. Andres Acosta, host of our series Obesity in GI Care, Start a Conversation, Change the Narrative. This series consists of six podcast episodes and three webinars, provide a comprehensive approach to diagnosing and treating obesity with a specific focus on patients with GI comorbidities. In today's episode, we're going to dive deep into updates on medications for obesity management in GI patients, and we're joined by Dr. Janice Laster. Fortunately, my co-host cannot join us today. Octavia is seeing patients in the clinic. So I'm delighted to have Dr. Laster today with us. She's a board certified internal medicine and gastroenterology through the American Board of Internal Medicine. She's also obesity medicine certified through the American Board of Obesity Medicine. And she's a diplomat in the Physician Nutrition Specialist through the National Board of Physician Nutrition Specialists. She also completed an SLE Clinical Nutrition Fellowship and then, vas endoscopy training fellowship with an international expert in Madrid, Dr. Gontran Lopez Nava. Currently, Ultraser is owner of the Gathery Total Digestive Care in Washington DC. It's a practice set out to help patients maintain healthy body weights through sustainable lifestyle changes, personalized nutrition education and counseling, pharmacology, and endoscopic techniques. She truly believes that if she can change your life, starting with your gut. So I'm so excited to have you today, but before we start, we'd like to just revisit the obesity fact from the last episode, which was after what decade of life does your basic metabolic rate start to decline? And then the answer is after the second decade. The decline started the second decade after age 20. The decrease accelerates in the reduction in the basic metabolic rate about 40 men and 15 women. Some data is telling that the most pronounced decrease is around 60 for both males and women when we adjust for fat-free mass. Janice, it's great to have you today. Let's start with what made you get into obesity care? How do you start there?
1: Good morning. Thank you for having me. So nice to meet you virtually. I think it's actually started throughout my life. Now, when I really think back and look back over time, my family, I used to call them tree huggers with gardening in the city. I'm like, nobody gardens in the city. What's wrong with you people? But being fooled as a kid to think yoga was the same thing as ice cream. My mom had a lot of reverse psychology there. So when I think about it, I'm look back and realize, oh, this is something that's probably been instilled throughout my life. But starting in a lot in GI fellowships, seeing so many patients that sort of presented the exact same way and feeling they all had abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, heartburn, bloating, constipation, diarrhea. And we did everything, right? We do the upper endoscopy, the colonoscopy, H. pylori, celiac, SIBO, sucralose, like lact- like all of these testing. You I mean, HIDA scans. People have had their gallbladder taken out, all of this stuff. And they come back to the clinic and they still have these same symptoms. And during my fellowship, I'm like, what are we doing for these people? I feel like we're doing absolutely nothing here. How am I going to help these people? And then I recognize, like, it has to be diet. But at that point, I only had an N of one, what I ate. I was like, something is happening. And I asked them when they have these symptoms. just after eating McDonald's. It's after eating Popeye's. It's after they're coming in the clinic with this massive big gulp cup of soda, and they're complaining of bloating. It's after ice cream, and so I'm thinking there's uh, some a ring to this here. Um, I need to figure out what that thing is, and so I'm trying to figure that out. And once you dive in, so much data, and some of it is contradictory. Some of it doesn't really seem to add up. Some of the science is not great. And I said, okay, where in the world do I start? And then being a GI doctor, wanting to be able to add procedures to the mix too, I ended up going to a second year fellows course where I was first introduced to bariatric endoscopy. Chris Thompson from Brigham did a talk and my mind was blown. I'm like, I want to do this thing. This is amazing. So spoke to him after and he's like, oh, sure. Come to Brigham. i got my program somehow to jump on board with this and went to figure it out. And from there, I'm like, all right, this is it. I want to be able to do all of this stuff together. That's when I ended up applying for the Nutrition Fellowship. And that taught me about nutrition and the data and the history. But I need to also know more detail about obesity and obesity management. And that's where obesity medicine boards came in to learn more about the medications, more about the basal metabolic rate, understanding how that played into patients' weight. And then I realized how difficult obesity was. And that's when I realized, okay, this is, we really got to change a lot of bias in people's ideas about obesity and excess weight, because now it makes, it's told all of it started to make sense to me at that point. I wanted to be able to do the entire spectrum. I wanted to be able to not only understand the nutrition piece and not have to have a GI dietitian necessarily, but also be able to understand as well, to be able to counsel patients. And also be able to add that medication piece and that procedural piece. So everything except surgery, I wanted to be able to do. That's how I got here.
0: That's fascinating. It's a lovely story that many of us have walked, but I think more gastroenterologists should do. So at what point during your career, you decided to do a little bit more than endoscopy. I need to do nutrition. I need to do also, you know, become an ABOM, obesity certified and embrace all the other tools not just endoscopy. Many of us are just doing endoscopy. Some other of us are doing everything. And what was your point that you said, I'm going to do a little bit more comprehensive?
1: I realized that so many of these patients had so many preventable metabolic diseases and so many preventable symptoms, the hypertension, diabetes, high cholesterol, fatty liver disease, seeing so many patients, especially training at a transplant center, seeing so many patients needing liver transplants, starting from fatty liver and families being devastated. When you have a little old lady that's coming in and the family, you tell them this person does they have cirrhosis and the family is in shock and yell at you and say, she doesn't drink. And you have to explain to them what fatty liver is. And so it's a devastating sort of disease process, seeing patients have multiple knee replacement and hip replacement, all these other things, and all of this chronic pain And seeing that, you know, it doesn't have to be this way. Most of this stuff is actually preventable. It is still a lot of procedures. It's a lot of inpatients, research, all those other things, but not a lot of time that's allotted to be able to spend the necessary time to help these patients and to undo the 40, 50 years of habits they've created. And in private practice, it was, okay, go do you know 25 colonoscopies today. And you need to see 30 patients throughout the day. You don't have an hour to spend with people. You have 15 minutes to spend with people. And I realized that just wasn't enough for me. It wasn't enough time to be able to talk to patients with these chronic symptoms and be able to get them to understand it because a lot of it was getting patients to buy in. I think they are really, they all have these terrible symptoms and they think that they've gone to 17 GI doctors. I've had so many people that are like, oh, your number's 18. I'm like, oh, great. Um, so now I have to co- overcome all the things you've heard before and they're like by that time, they built this armor of doctors are bad people. Nobody listens to me. They think it's in my head. I told them I'm not eating this much. Why can't I lose weight? And so it's me just trying to disarm, have the time to disarm them in the first place to say, no, I hear you. I completely hear you. And let's figure out what your basal metabolic rate is because this is chronic. This is relapsing. This is a multifactorial sort of disease process. And it's actually a disease. It is not your fault. Let's take the blame away. And so you can see people's sort of shoulders relax And I'm like, no, I believe you. Not your fault. And they're like, wait, what? I was ready to fight. They come in ready to to, to get you. But I knew you needed that time to be able to break through, to make people feel comfortable, to be able to explain to them all of those things throughout their lives, all those epigenetic factors, all those things that sort of contributed where they are. And it not just, you should just exercise more and eat less. I mean, I'll have patients that are literally starving themselves by the time I see them and doing two to three times A day workouts. And they see me and I'm like, no, you have to eat a little bit more. We're going to change what you eat, but you actually have to eat. And they are always shocked when they say, how am I eating more? How somehow losing weight, seeing so many patients and seeing the mentality that as we get older, you're just supposed to be on medications. I'll have diabetes. No, I'm like, it doesn't have to be that way. And so I try to share that data with patients. You don't want a life that is like consistent with nothing but doctor's appointments and sitting all day and being in chronic pain. And I try to get people to just wrap their brains around that.
0: I'm sure we can dive into nutrition a lot and, and probably you're doing a lot of it, but we want to get your thoughts on medications. And I agree that not everyone should be on not. but tell me in big picture, how do you see the role as a gastroenterologist for using of anti-obesity medications in your practice, as well as in everyone else's practice of GI, as well as for the obesity care?
1: I think we as physicians have got to get comfortable with medications. I think we have to change our biases to help patients get rid of their biases too, because I think oh, sometimes patients feel. They get this thing from us, really, that they should be able to do this on their own. They shouldn't need a medication. They don't want to have a medication for the rest of their lives. I think medications play a major role. And as I explain it to patients, if you came in with a hemoglobin A1C of 10, it's a no-brainer. You get on, you're get going to start on medication. If you go to the emergency room with a blood pressure of 180 over 100, you're going to be on blood pressure medicine. So what is the difference if you having a BMI of 48? We know what's going to happen down the line. We know you're having symptoms. You have sleep apnea. You have all these other symptoms. So why don't we do this? And so it really is bothersome to me. These patients need help. These patients will reach a point where it gets more difficult for them to have weight loss and to get them over that hump. I think medications are super useful to sort of help positions. And I use them frequently, even after patients have had a bariatric endoscopy procedure to sort of help continue them on their path and get them to that level. Patients that have had surgery that I see who sort of have had some weight regain, this medication is sort of, is perfect. And I explain it to um, patients is obesity is a chronic disease. That is a definition. It is a chronic disease. And so it's something that we're always going to be monitoring. And I think medications should be used more. I think insurance companies have to jump on board too, to Covering them. That's another sort of problem because they're so expensive. And we're like always playing around with trying to find sneaky ways to, to get them for patients and coupons and reps and all of this other stuff. But I think they're incredible and they're life-saving for people. I've had patients that feel so much better and feel so much more in control and it builds confidence. It builds that psychological piece. So they, they feel like they can keep going. Those are things that they're all important and they're excited yeah. when they go back and they're able to get off a of blood pressure medicine. Yeah, So I love them.
0: So you have touched so many important topics of medications, but I would love to hear your thoughts on how you transition from someone who is in a diet who has plateaued and try to then convert them or start a new tool such as a medication or a device. In this case, let's talk about medications, but I would love when you, if you can dip a little bit more into and explain a little bit more what you mean by that set point, what kind of examples you use to explain to the patients, and they'll be happy to then provide those references touch to this podcast for our, our listeners.
1: Perfect. Everything is telehealth the first visit and I show them sort of slides and I try to pull them in with data and a bunch of graphs and I'm able to show them, listen, we know that ghrelin levels change after you have weight loss, which is why you feel more hungry and patients think, oh my God, I thought it was just me. I thought I was crazy. All right, so that's one thing. And I'm like, okay, we also know your basal metabolic rate decreases. So it's harder, even if you're doing the same thing you were eating six months ago, it becomes harder to get that weight off. So we have to make some changes. It's sort of I try to change like plate ratios, not necessarily sort of calorie count concept, but sort of plate ratios help continue to get you in that point. And I said, so it, it becomes slower at that point. So it's rapid in the beginning with that weight loss, with that big change, but then it slows down. That's when I tell them, that's when I like to use medication. When you hit that little plateau over time, eventually get out of that plateau. But are you going to get frustrated during that time? Like most people in this country will do. You're going to get annoyed, get frustrated and start going back and say, I may as well go back to having A, B and C because this isn't helping anymore. And so one of the things I use is not as fancy as mayo, but I have a bioimpedance machine that I'm able to be able to give them an objective measure of their basal metabolic rate, visceral fat. And so it's so helpful for patients because when they come back in midway through, I'm able to show them okay, with this 15 pound weight loss you've had or 20 pound weight loss you've had over the last couple of months, let's show you a look of what's happening to your visceral fat, skeletal muscle mass, all those things. But let's also importantly look at what's happening to your basal metabolic rate. And every single time they're able to see, they're like able to put together, what we talked about during that first visit, which that's going to go down. And they're like, man, it did decrease. I'm like, yeah, it did. And so getting them to sort of understand it from that mechanism, A, makes them feel a little bit better about that sort of shame and guilt that comes around, along with excess weight, but also makes them open to saying, this makes sense why I would, should use a medication right now, because something has happened and changed within my body. So yeah, of course I need a medication at this point. And then sort of talking to them about why we use the medication and what they're doing at that point. We talk about them a little bit about how it works, and that they're still really in control, and it's not that the medication is doing it for them, which is why I sort of explain to them we start off with you making those changes, so it becomes easier over time. And most of them have already been through this sort of back and forth, up and down of weight loss. So when I'm yep. talking to them about a set point and regaining and regaining more, they're like, "Oh my God, how did you know this was happening to me?" And I'm like, "Because." It's the, the physiology and the nature of excess weight. So just sort of leave it into, in their ball, in their court, and say, this is what I do for most of my people. and But it's based on your history, your medications, contraindications, particular side effects, and we sort of go from there.
0: Could you explain to our listeners what medications are out there and what do they do and how do you use them?
1: Yep. So there most medications that we, I use are the ones that are approved for long-term use. And so one of those is the dual medication of fentamine and topiramate. Fentamine is a symptom of medication, and the topiramate is an anti-seizure migraine medication. The reason they started to put those together is because they found that people used to use fentamine alone, but would have a lot of side effects because of the higher dose with palpitations nervousness, shaking, blood pressure going up, that sort of thing. But with the fentamine and topiramirate, you're able to use sort of a smaller dose. We don't understand completely why it works with the topiramirate, but we know that it allows us to be able to use this medication for a longer period of time without people having a lot of side effects. This one I like to use in patients that feel hungry all the time and have a hard time being satiated and feel like they need really large portions of food throughout time. In clinic, when I'm seeing patients in the beginning, I'm trying to train their brains about what portion sizes are, because a lot of times I think it's it's a lot of habit and everybody goes, well, of course I should have this 12 ounce steak. This is the special. I'm, I'm special. I'm out celebrating. This is what I deserve. And then they give you this massive bowl of mashed potatoes with all of this stuff, like hang like juice and butter dripping from the sides. And they put two little asparagus on top. And so people's brains think these are normal portion sizes. And so we joke with my patients. I'm like, all right, that's not a portion size. Those two asparagus is not a portion of um, vegetables per day. That's the first thing it's getting them to understand portion control. And this medication really helps with that. It's helped reinforce what I'm telling patients. One medication that I don't really use a lot is Orlistat. And that one's a GI lipase inhibitor. And that one works by decreasing absorption of fats. First of all, a patient has to be on a high-fat diet. We're going to be talking about anyway, so most of my time, my patients are not going to be very useful. But people tend to not like the how it works, which is calling zinc a rectal discharge. Most people don't want to be to induce leakage from their rectum and diarrhea, so typically don't like that. So that's one that I don't use a whole lot. Another one that's on the market is liraglutide. That's an injectable medication, a glucagon-like receptor, no peptide receptor, the agonist. The cousin to that one is semaglutide, which is dosed weekly, but the same mechanism. They found these medications because they realized at lower dose, they were initially treated for diabetes and recognized in trials. Oh, wow. These people are losing weight. Let's put it on the market with a different name and use it for, for weight loss and then not cover it. So that's fun. But at higher doses. And sometimes this one is a hard sale because it's an injectable, but I find it to work really well in patients that seems hormonal. They're not eating a whole lot, but they do. Sometimes they empty a little bit quickly, so they may eat a little bit more frequently, but also it just works on that hypothalamus and that arcuate nucleus and that GLP hitting the brain to be able to say, oh, great, I'm satiated. I don't need anything else. Using that, our natural sort of pathway. And Semaglutide it tends to work for my patients because it's, I can really talk them into that one because it's injection once a week. And so that sounds, that feels doable for people. And when I show them how small the pen is, they say, oh, that's okay. I can do that one. And then another one is naltrexone and bupropion. Sometimes this one's a hard sell because people see naltrexone and they think there's a stigma around that one. That one's an opioid antagonist. And then bupropion is an antidepressant, anti-anxiolytic medication. This one I find useful in patients that have a lot of emotional eating, patients that sort of when they're happy, eat when they're sad, do a lot of grazing, have issues with eating a lot of carbs, those sort of things. So that one's a good one for that one. One that came and went is the carcerin and that one's serotonin 2C receptor. And I think that's was what was different from it where there was a receptor, I think it was 2R receptor. So a different receptor is how it made it. But that one got taken from the market because of some correlations, possibly of increased cancer risk, but wasn't sure if it was actually correlated. So just voluntarily removed it. So I d- never used that one anyway. But that was one of the other players in the game. So all of those are approved for for long term use. And sometimes people will use fentamine, sort of, which is approved or technically approved for short term use, like three months. But some people will still use it. For longer periods, just fentamine alone. So those are the majority of approved medications that are out there. There's some other coming out that I try to get people the most bang for their buck with their weight management, which I find so it usually be with the fentamine and topiramirate or the semaglutide and then the now in certain populations.
0: This is a beautiful summary. And I love how you explain how you use them for potential listeners. If you want to use fentanyl, check with your state, whether you're allowed to use it for three months. There are states who are very restricted on this. There are states who are okay with you using fentanyl as long as you see the patients either monthly or every three months. And then I have to throw a little bit of a joke of Orlistat, because it's <laughs> for gastroenterologists. And I do use Orlistat, but Orlistat, you need to have the perfect trifecta that only gastroenterologists will understand, Okay. Obesity, so there's indication for the med. Constipation, and then a normal anal sphincter. Why? Why the <laughs> third one so important? All this that will help you not absorb fat, but the side effects are diarrhea and leakage. So if you have constipation, you're solving the problem. You're targeting two things. But that anal sphincter, as we gastroenterologists like to talk about, is essential to avoid problems with leakage, and then all these other problems that come with this kind of oily diarrhea or seateria that are always stuff. So I'll use it, but you need to have the trifecta as patients. That's my little joke. of uh, the only gastroenterologists will understand this. Oh, yes, we love
1: this stuff. And patients get so <laughs> yeah. weirded out about it. I'm like, you don't even understand. This is literally us all day long talking about poop. It's fine.
0: <laughs> yeah, so that's what I'm saying. But you also touch an important topic. You mentioned about carcerin, and you also mentioned about fentamine, fenfluramine. We still have Fentermine on the market. And without even saying, but there was also this drug called Sibutramine, has been taken out of the market in the last decade. Fentermine, Femfluramine was taken out in the late 90s. Unfortunately, there's a lot about things about happening with safety with these medications. So can you tell us a little bit more about safety and why you think the medications that we're using now are safe compared to these ones who were recently taken out of the market or have been taken out of the market in the last few decades?
1: So those medications were taken off because of the receptor they worked on and they caused valvular heart problems and pulmonary hypertension. I think we learned a lot from that. Like I know for me, I make sure if they have high blood pressure, that it is well controlled. We are checking their blood pressure routinely. I make them check it at home when we first start. We slowly ramp up dosing over over time. It's not overnight. And I do that with every single medication. And it's annoying, incessant check-ins and I scare them to pieces a little bit about the the possible side effects and sort of the things that I know are pretty rare in the medications, but I tell them all of them. And we talk about the ones that are most common, but then I say, you know what, these are important. So if you have any of these things, I want a portal message, I want a text, I want something to say any about these things. So that way I think we're more in tune with paying closer attention to slight changes. I had a patient on naltrexone and that said that she had a vision change in my brain because she knew it, that I wanted to know every single thing. And so did it sound like acute glycoma? Of course not. But that's initially, and said, stop it right now. Let's make sure, let's see what's going to happen to these symptoms. Let's figure out what else was going on. And these are things that I think that we have become smarter about. The contraindications, the black box warnings. Like for example, if somebody has family history of Men2 syndrome or any of those things or pancreatitis or cholecystitis that is still has their gallbladder. These are things that I talk about in detail. And when I tell patients, these are not things that we take without risk. And so making sure you talk about those risks in detail, talk about family history, talk about how they feel. A lot of detail about if you drink, if you're a coffee drinker, I don't want you to drink coffee the first week that you're on fentamine until pyrimarite. If you're already on, if you already have issues with seizure disorders or issues with alcohol or if you're on a narcotic, then we're not going to do the naltrexone bupropion medication. So these are things that I think ha- we've been taught to be judicious in who we use these medications in. Even if it's someone that I really think fentamine and topiary will work well in, I just can't use it if your blood pressure is elevated though. We have to get that controlled first. And I think in paying attention and being conscious of making sure patients are aware and so they're in tuned and listening to if they have palpitations or if they have a consistent headache and little things that sort of can trigger to us as physicians, maybe the blood pressure is elevated or something like that. So I think that is very what i learned from those medications data and time will 12 these medications were what approved in and- what 20 like most of them after 2010 or so and we're still early in the game for them for the medications and maybe other things that will come up but I I like to believe that with having labs beforehand having sort of making sure we know what those vitals are having patients be very aware having that consistent follow-up like you said people I don't do multiple refills because I'm going to make sure you're coming back so I can know exactly what's happened I'm going to force you to answer these questions about stools about weight about how much you're eating And finding that sort of perfect balance, because some patients will, once we get to a higher dose, patients will say, oh, no, I love it. I'm not eating at all. I'm like, no, that's not the goal to not eat at all. We need to come back down in the dose. Then we got to find that happy medium where you're still eating throughout the day and you're having some signal to eat. So I think follow-up is super, super important. And I impress it upon my patients, those membership program to get them to understand accountability, follow-up, very important to make sure they don't have any symptoms, side effects. And so I can know when the plateaus are happening, if the medication is working, because I tell them, My blood pressure medication, I know if that's working. You take the medication, I check your blood pressure, it's lower. With weight loss medications, what do we do? I have to, you have to see you. I have to make sure that you're not having side effects, but within 12 weeks that you're lost at least 5% of your total body weight. If not, it's time to say, okay, this one doesn't work. Let's try something else. And so giving people that timeline, that's what I learned from the heart problems and the pulmonary hypertension is you you have to really pay attention and just not think anything is foolproof because nothing we do is, but just making sure that patients are very much aware. And if you arm them with the information, they keep it in mind. They'll let you know.
0: Beautiful. I cannot agree more. We have learned so much from these medications that we withdraw from the market. We've learned so much from the new medications. And I think it's important to give kudos to the FDA because now these medications are just not approved first for short term. The FDA has not understand that obesity is a chronic disease and medications as well as most of the devices should be for long term. And second, we're not talking about small studies anymore. We're talking about multiple studies with two, 3,000 patients that have followed these patients sometimes for a couple of years. And then now the FDA is endorsing a Post-marketing watch of these medications, so we keep learning about them. I love what you said, Tulas. Last. We have to be vigilant and make sure that the, our patients, as with any other medication, yeah. are well taken care of, not having side effects. Lovely. There's good medications. You're telling us how you use it. You're telling us how to look for safety, adverse events, and so on. What is a patient expecting from weight loss? What are you seeing on your clinic? We we know the trials. People can go and read them, but in your experience, what are you seeing on on your clinic, on your outcomes, on your patients within a multidisciplinary program such as yours?
1: That's a good question. I'd show patients the data and give them an idea of what to expect. And mine correlates with what we see in the trials, that I get typically greater weight loss with semaglutide. And then fintameine and topiramate and naltrexona is probably the least amount. And probably I use naltrexona at least too. So I don't have the same in of those patients, but because I, I find less people to use that one in fintameine and topiramate, so I've seen some really good weight loss in those patients. And like I talk to patients, I'm like for fatty liver or diabetes or hypertension, if you can get five to 10% of your total body weight loss, you improve your blood pressure, you reverse fatty liver. And so they all tend to get beyond at least like 10%. So patients are, are really excited about it. It's really exciting to see that spark come back when they get frustrated after that plateau. So yeah, I've been able to get an additional 20 pounds or so with medication. So so it's fun.
0: If we like to put this in big numbers, percentages. What do you think percentage-wise you're seeing on your clinic? The same as in the trials, 8 to 10% for most of the meds. What are you seeing now in real world?
1: Real world, probably, I would say most of my patients will get definitely over 10% with semaglutide, total body weight loss, for sure. When fentramine and topiramate hit or miss, most of my patients still do well with fentramine and topiramate, and I usually will get at least 10% total body weight loss. I've had a few non-responders to fentramine and topiramate, but only not many. And I've only had one non-responder to semaglutide. Or actually it was using the lower dose um, because I couldn't get the semaglutide because of the shorter. Started to have that weight loss. And I think maybe it's due to that consistent follow-up. And that's one thing I learned from Gontrano being in Madrid is they had this center that had the psychologists in there, the endocrinologists. There was all this follow-up all the time. There was so much consistency. And that's when I really learned, oh, this is why your data works. It does a great job with procedures, but the center is just set up for patients to have success because that's constant follow-up. And so I think that's important when patients have that accountability for that follow-up.
0: I love it. And unfortunately, we're up to time. It's been a lovely conversation. There's a lot more to be discussed on meds. You touched briefly, and we don't have time to go deeper into reimbursement. We know that's still a major problem. But I'll invite all our listeners to hear Dr. Joe Briel, who is an expert on reimbursement for obesity and obesity care, who has recorded a, a podcast and giving us information about the importance of about billing for obesity, NASH, and comorbidities associated with obesity. So I'll invite everyone to listen to that podcast presentation that will be on the AGA website. This has been wonderful. I really want to thank you for your time. And thank you everyone for tuning in to today's episode, which is the episode three of six of our series, Obesity in GI Care. I started the conversation and changed the narrative. Which is made possible by an unrestricted educational grant from Novo Nordics. and just a little bit of conflict of interest.ing Today was mentioned about two medications that are FDA approved for obesity and are from Novo Nordisk. Special thanks to our guest today, Dr. Denise Laster. We really enjoy the conversations. Fascinating what you're doing, and can't wait to hear more about you in the near future. So, for our listening audience, I'd like to bring you to your obesity trivia question of the day. And it's, which is one pound of fat is equivalent to how many calories? Keep listening to our series for the answer of this factoid in our next episode. And in our next episode, we're going to discuss an update on devices, evaluating patient's outcomes, adapting treatment plans, and obesity coding and reimbursement. So for additional resources from this program, including the release of additional podcast episodes and webinars, go to the AGA university at AGA.gastro.org. Thank you, everyone, for your listening, and I hope everyone has a wonderful day. Thanks for listening to Inside Scope, an official AGA podcast. Make sure to subscribe to be notified as we roll out new episodes. For more GI education, visit AGA university at agau.gastro.org.